0: Well, in the New Testament, we've been given uh, four accounts of the time Jesus spent on earth. They're known as the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And each of them tells the story of Jesus from a unique perspective, addressing some unique pastoral and evangelistic concerns they had when they when they told the story of Jesus. And and so they all come at Jesus from their own perspective, but together they present you and I with a wonderful portrait of the Savior. Now, there are certain snapshots and certain moments that you may find in one gospel that do not appear in one of the other gospels. For example, in the gospel of John, that's the only one where we are told about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Or you consider the Gospel of Luke. Luke's the only one who tells us of the moment Jesus forgave the sin of a woman while attending a house party at a Pharisee's home. And so you may find brief moments of little snapshots from Jesus' life and ministry and one that may not be found in the other, but there was one dynamic that is consistent in all four Gospels. There was one aspect that is consistent of utmost importance for you and for I to consider tonight. That is, these four Gospels cover, it seems, about three years of Jesus' ministry in and to the world that we live in. And you think about that dynamic, each of these Gospels communicating three years of of moments in Jesus' life and ministry and strategically dropping stories down to to teach us incredible things about what Jesus taught and about what Jesus did. But in all four Gospels, the vast majority of their time and the vast majority of their attention is given to the final week of Jesus' life. And the reason why that is significant is that if we do not take a moment to consider how when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that colt or on the back of that donkey. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem in that moment, the storyline, the narrative, everything just slowed way, way down. It's as though the Holy Spirit was prepping us and is intending for you and I to consider what was most important about Jesus' time in this world. So you take the Gospel of John, for example, the first 11 chapters cover about three years of Jesus' life on earth, but then the final 10 chapters deal with one week, everything slowing down as the story moves towards the moment when Jesus would give his life for us on the cross. And the reason why we want to think about that and we want to recognize how important that is for us is because we want to avoid making the dangerous mistake of treating and viewing Jesus simply as an example for us to follow rather than the Savior who's come to our rescue. So you think about the words that Jesus communicated often throughout his life and his ministry, the the things that he taught us about the kingdom of God, the things that he taught us about uh, ethics and morality that should be present within human beings created in his image. You think about all the words that he communicated, and yes, we champion the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus are important. But as we consider the things that Jesus said to us about the life that we should be living or the way that we should spend our time in this world, we we should come to those moments where we are weeping when confronted with the incongruity between what Jesus said and what you and I are actually, actually like. You think about the moment Jesus said, makes this statement in Matthew chapter 5, and you think soberly tonight that Jesus wasn't joking when he said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And understand with those words, Jesus was not inviting you and I into a self-righteous competition with the religious leaders of the first century Jewish world. He wasn't saying, look at them, you must be better than them. That's not the point of what he was saying because Jesus would go on in his words and he would go on in his teaching and he would argue that the standards of God's law, the standards of God's requirement are are too high for any of us to attain. The weight of his word is too heavy for any of us to carry out and fulfill on our own. I'll give you a few examples to think about. Jesus once said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, if we were to scroll through your social media posts, Or perhaps watch a highlight reel of the ways in which you have interacted with your family over the course of this past year as you think about the disagreements concerning the pandemic and the political landscape of our country. If we were to survey your social media posts or watch a highlight reel of those interactions, do you think we would see you carrying out Jesus's words in that moment? Or you think about this, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Would an examination of your computer or your smartphone's search history, would an examination of those mediums, would they reveal a a clear and constant obedience to Jesus' words? Would they show you being a person attaining to the standards of God communicated to us in Jesus' teaching? Or you think about another one. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth far more than they? How many sleepless nights have you had recently? What concerns have caused you to toss and turn in your bed? What what does such tossing and turning and worrying and fretting, what does that reveal about your ability to obey Jesus' words? See, people in our society, whether they belong to the media, whether they belong to the political sphere, or whether they are a man pontificating from a bar stool in downtown Seattle, they often make passionate pleas and appeals to Jesus' example and teaching as if Jesus' example and teaching are in and of themselves good for us. They often appeal to Jesus' words in an effort to expose what Appears to them as Christian hypocrisy or they appeal to Jesus' teaching in order to support a concern that they carry in the world. And they say, Jesus says to be like this, so we should be like this. Failing to see the incongruity between what Jesus says and what we are really actually like. You know, we live in a city where we selectively champion different causes and concerns and we grab Jesus as kind of our historical authority on a particular topic our city loves Jesus's words about helping the disenfranchised and loving the hurting but our city does not love Jesus's words about human sexuality and so you consider the words of Jesus tonight and you examine your life in light of them and I want you to hear that the good news of the gospel isn't heard in the words of Jesus. The good news of the gospel isn't heard when you are appealed to follow Jesus' example. No, the good news of the gospel is found in Not the words of Jesus necessarily. The good news of the gospel is found in the work of Jesus. Specifically the work that Jesus accomplishes for sinners and sufferers like us on Good Friday. This work that we've heard read to us and over us tonight as we consider the narrative of Jesus' story slowing down and zeroing in on all the events that would unfold to the point when Jesus goes to the cross. Now it may sound like I'm unnecessarily splitting hairs, but I would encourage you to pay attention to how Christianity is discussed in the public sphere. Far more attention is given to Jesus' words, what he tells us to do, than is given to Jesus' work, what he has done for us. And without the work of Jesus, the words of Jesus will only destroy us. They will only expose us and level us. We need the work of Jesus. And all four gospels slow down to the final few days of Jesus' life on earth to zero us in on that reality. I once had a conversation with a friend about the gospel, and she said to me, No, I'm a good person. I love people. I'm I'm not as bad as Christianity says that I am. And in response, I looked at my friend and I said, I do not doubt that you are a good person. I do not doubt that you love people. In fact, I know you love your daughter. But at the same time, I do not doubt that your goodness is relative. It is relative to those you compare yourself with. Have you ever compared yourself with Jesus? Have you ever weighed your life by the words Jesus spoke to people? And then I went on to say, I do not doubt that you are a loving person, but I do not doubt that your love is also quite limited. I believe you love your family. I believe you love your friends. I believe you feel compassionate concern for impoverished children in the world, But I do not think you love everyone. In fact, I knew my friend's story well enough to consider whether or not she loved the man who abused her in her younger years. And I shared with her the words of Jesus that tell us and command us and call us to love our enemies. And I asked her to consider if she loves like that And if each and every one of us were honest in this moment, we will find that there are limitations to the love that we have for our fellow human beings. Yet Jesus' word says there, there should be no limitation to that. Which again is why I say that without the work of Jesus, Jesus doing something for us, the words of Jesus will only destroy us. There is no gospel necessarily in what Jesus tells us about life in this world. The gospel is heard when we look to the cross and we see him dying in our place for our sins. So when we hear his word, when we hear him saying things to us like your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes or you must not look it upon another person with lustful intent in your heart, or you must not consider ill will towards family or friends, or that you must love your enemies and you must bless those who persecute you. When we hear those words, where do you go? What do you do with them? Well, I would encourage you tonight that Good Fridays encourage you to hear those words and to run to the work of Christ, hear those words, and to move towards the cross where Jesus does something for us. And so I want you to think about a few aspects of Jesus' work on the cross that, that the gospel of John called our attention to. You just think about how Jesus, though he was innocent, he took the place of the guilty. Being innocent, Jesus took the place of the guilty. That's the work of Christ. Now, one of the things about John's gospel is that a key literary feature of it, if you're reading it carefully and closely, you're going to find irony being a big deal where movers and shakers in John's narrative are often saying and doing far more than they realize. So when Pilate looks at Jesus twice and he says, I find no grounds for charging him, Pilate was affirming the innocence of Jesus, that he really is the spotless lamb without, he is the lamb without blemish. Or you think about the moment when At the end of John chapter 18, the crowds are given a choice between Jesus and a man named Barabbas, and they have to choose which one they want to go free. And Barabbas was the one who was already convicted of of being an insurrectionist. He was already guilty of the very crime Jesus is going to be accused of, of soliciting, or one of the things that the Roman government feared most from Jesus, Barabbas had already committed. He was already seeking to overthrow the Roman government. And yet the crowd's given this choice to choose between Jesus and Barabbas an innocent, the innocent one or the guilty one. And what does the crowd choose? The crowd chooses Barabbas to go free. And you find in that moment an exchange illustrating what ultimately goes down at the cross where the innocent one takes the place of guilty sinners and sufferers like me. And like you. But then you think about the power of Jesus and how, although Jesus is the most powerful person in the narrative of the gospel, yet he showed such restraint, surrendering himself to his suffering and to his death. You think about how Jesus could have prevented everyone from mocking him, everyone from abusing him, everyone from crucifying him. When the soldiers arrived to arrest Jesus in the garden, they They said that they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and when Jesus said, I am he, what happened? Jesus revealed his identity, and everybody there fell flat. The only one standing in that moment was Jesus. And Jesus could have prevented everyone from getting back up, but that's not what he did. Being the powerful one, he restrained himself, submitting himself to take our place, to do something for us that we could never do For ourselves, he was more powerful than the Roman guard. But then Jesus was more powerful than the Roman governor, Pilate. When Pilate tried to pull rank on Jesus, he said to Jesus, don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus responded, you would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. That's one of the biggest mic drop moments in all of the gospel. Jesus just dropping the mic on Pilate, essentially saying, look, you have no authority over me except that which was given to you by God. In other words, I'm not here to follow your agenda. I'm here to follow my Father's agenda, and he's got all this under his control. So rather than flexing his power in order to save himself from being crucified, Jesus, this is his work. He surrendered himself to suffer and to die in our place. But then one of the most moving moments in the narrative is when Jesus is is sober-minded enough in the midst of his suffering, hanging on the cross, and he looks out and he sees his mom and he makes plans to care for her. You find Jesus caring for those he loved even, even as the blood was being drained from his body. You know, rarely are people humble enough to look beyond their sufferings to care for others in need. Yet that's precisely how Jesus died. And From the cross, he saw his mom, Mary, and being a good son, he made sure she would be cared for once he was gone. He paired her with the disciple whom he loved, which is a reference to John, the author of this gospel, and, and John would then take her into his home and make sure she was supported during the dawn of her days see Jesus didn't wallow in self-pity as he was being crucified instead he continued to care for others that's the work of Christ but then finally you think about who Jesus is being the giver of life and coming to that moment where he's hanging on the cross and he Breathes his last breath, giving up his life. You take that moment, for example, when Jesus received the sour wine. Now, this wasn't a sedative like the wine mixed with myrrh that Jesus rejected earlier. This was a sour wine that soldiers often drank to quench their thirst on the battlefield and no doubt Jesus was fighting on the cross. He was fighting for you he was fighting for me he was doing the work necessary for you and i to stand before a holy god and and call him not just our creator but to call him our father this was the battle jesus was fighting so he takes in the sour wine and we're told after receiving it jesus said it is finished meaning my work is done what i've come to do i've done and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit And from that moment forward, his fate would now rest with his heavenly Father. Now, there are so many things packed in that final moment of Jesus' life. You think about how the story of the Bible begins, God creating everything in six days. And after he completed the work of creation, we are told that God rested on the Sabbath. Well, there's a similar rhythm and a similar dynamic happening on the cross. Jesus dies on a Friday afternoon. He dies in order to complete the work of atonement, to pay a penalty that you and I deserve to pay but could never pay ourselves. And so we're told that after completing the work of atonement, dying for our sins, Jesus was laid to rest in a tomb for the Sabbath. And the moment he was put in that tomb, all the world had to do from that moment forward was wait. Was wait with their questions. Was Jesus just like everyone else? If he stays dead, then the answer to that is yes. If Jesus remains dead, then he is no different from any other inspirational religious figure that has ever walked the planet. If Jesus stays dead, he is simply an example for you and I to follow. If Jesus stays dead, then his words are the only thing we have to to follow and to bank our lives on. And and the closer we get to doing so, the further it will be exposed of our ability to do so. And so you think about Jesus being laid to rest in the tomb for the Sabbath. Everyone wondering, is Jesus just like everyone else? Is Jesus just another example? Or was he more? Was Jesus more than an example? Was he more than a teacher? Was he more than a moral authority or an ethical, inspirational person? Well, we'll have to wait to Sunday to see. Because Sunday will say whether or not Jesus is more than an example. Sunday will tell us whether or not there is any help after we hear the heavy words Jesus taught in his life and in his ministry. Sunday will tell us whether or not his work accomplished anything for us that might last let's pray together heavenly Father. As we think about jesus dying on the cross give us grace to think well about that moment give us grace to consider all the questions that may have been circulating in the hearts and minds of so many people who witnessed that moment his friends his family his enemies everyone seeing the same thing and And having questions and suspicions about that moment, I pray, God, that you would give us grace to wrestle well with those same questions over the next couple of days. And then, Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts with the reality that Sunday will say whether or not Jesus is more than an example, that Sunday will say whether or not Jesus is the Savior that we should trust in, the Savior that we should bank on, the Savior that we should Cherish and thank you for God Sunday will say. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear what Sunday has to say in Jesus' name.